Muhammad means worthy of all praises, and Ali means most high. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. Here we have the final chapter in the ongoing series that we've done about the life and legacy of Muhammad Ali. We are going to speak to Bill Siegel, the director of the greatest Muhammad Ali doc I've ever seen, The Trials of Muhammad Ali. We're going to hear about his experiences face-to-face with the champ. We are also going to talk to cultural commentator and author Bijan Bain about Muhammad Ali and the media and his uses of media. It's absolutely fascinating. And then lastly, we send off a legend with words from a legend. We speak to 1968 Olympian John Carlos. And I will say here boldly, now on television, no, I will not go 10,000 miles from here to help murder and kill another poor people simply to continue the domination of white slave masters over the darker people of the earth. Let's jump right in with the director of the the incredible documentary, The Trials of Muhammad Ali, Bill Siegel. Bill, just straight up, how are you feeling? I mean, you heard the news about Muhammad passing on. How how did you take it? I get sadder and sadder. (laughs) I mean, I, I think it's coming at me in waves that he's really gone from the mortal plane, at least, even though his influence and, you know, his spirit will be here forever. But um, having gotten the chance to meet him a couple of times in different periods in my life and devoted a decent chunk of my life to studying his life and doing what I could to make a documentary film about him, there's something um, that I'm I'm deeply wounded by just in terms of having his his basic human presence gone. I've been doing quite a bit of press and um, trying to do what I can to help people consider that in the morning of his death and celebration of his life, to take inspiration from him as a guiding light for what it takes and what it means to really live a moral and principled, righteous, and a loving life. You know, I think that those are four of the many qualities that he represented and that not to just regard him, not to only miss him as much as I do and only grieve him or only celebrate him, but act upon his legacy in a way that moves you and hopefully your place in the world to a a better place. Because I truly believe that we're already better collectively because of Muhammad Ali, but that's no reason to stop. Now, I got to ask you, you you said that you had met him twice in your life. Can you speak about both of those times, what it entailed? It was two different periods. You know, there was a couple of times within each period. The first time, first period was when it's my first job in documentary film on a, on a, a project I've come to call the Titanic because it was this obscenely well-funded $6 million dollars of Japanese publishing house money to these two British guys who'd not made a documentary film before. They'd only made heavy metal music videos in 1990. 
I was in my mid twenties, just out of grad school. These guys had a beautiful loft in Soho with all the whatever amenities and all of Ali's fight footage, which, you know, long before ESPN classic, that stuff was hard to see because the rights were all locked up, but they had everything. So I got to watch all of his fights, many of which I had never seen before. And also discovered the Muhammad Ali beyond the ring that became the focus of my film. And through that period, Ali had signed on. I'm sure he got paid. I hope he got paid well and would come around the office, you know, now and again, just to kind of see what was going on and say hello. And pretty much every time he came, there was a variation on the theme of these two Brits trying to sequester Ali in their corner office and Ali rope a dope at his way out and coming down to the research pit where there was a lot more people and hanging out doing magic tricks. And it was so amazing that that's where he wanted to be. The Parkinson's was noticeable, but he could still speak and laugh and smile and riff and joke. And that's what, you know, it was just, I'll never forget. It just taught me a lot about humility. He wasn't showing off. He wasn't full of himself. He wanted to be with us. That was very, very moving. I just remember one time the British guys were taking him somewhere. They were always taking him somewhere. And they asked me to bring his bags down to the van. They took his bags down, loaded him on the elevator, loaded him on the van, went to go back up the elevator. And I'm standing there by myself. And I'm sure Ali knew what he was doing. He knew what I had done. And I was going to be standing in front of the elevator door to come up because when the door opened, he was standing right in the front of the elevator. And as the door opens, he started to fall forward, you know, in a pretend way toward me and then stopped and laughed and shook my hand and got in the van. And he just was doing that kind of stuff all the time. So that was one period. And then flash forward to when I started making my own film, The Trials of Muhammad Ali. My first move was to meet with Lonnie and Muhammad uh, at their farm in Berrien Springs, Michigan to essentially get their blessing to, you know, let them know who I was. Was it difficult to hook up that meeting? It's totally, it was very difficult, especially because right in the middle of setting it up, TKX came in and made that deal where they paid Ali $50 million for 80% of the rights to his image, likeness and name. And this lead wall came down. You know, I was in great contact before TKX. And just to be clear, that, that, that CTX, those are brand managers. They're the people who took over Elvis and Graceland and turned it and into American a, Idol and Ali. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I think subsequently they've sold the Ali holding. As far as I know, I've sort of lost track of what happened to it. Um, but yeah, that's who they are. Hmm, and, I wonder who um, they sold it to. Prior to that, the Ali business was like a little family business. There was just a few people on this farm. And Lonnie, I think very wisely to her credit, liquidated essentially the one remaining asset, which was exactly that, the intellectual ether of Ali for that tremendous amount of money, and then maintained a seat at the table. You know, 80% is what she sold, so she and Ali still had to approve everything that they tried to do. So then I had to circle back and start going through CKX, and that was just infinitely complicated. But all the while, I had an ace in the hole, which is my great friend, Leon Gast, who I met on the Titanic on that $6 billion project, which I forgot to mention, went down after a year. I called the Titanic because mm-hmm. those Brits spent $6 million bucks in a year and didn't finish the film. 
eventually the Japanese publishing company years later got it finished. But through that project, they met Leon because he was one of the segment editors. And he, when the Titanic went down, Leon pulled his chunk out and that became when we were Kings. So that's how I met Leon. Leon and the Ali's are very close. They love that film. And, um, he helped me get that beating even with CKX. And that's why when I went there and sat with Muhammad and Lonnie and a CKX attorney and pitched what I wanted to do. And Lonnie and Muhammad got it right away. They understood that despite everything out there that had already been done about Muhammad, nobody had zeroed in and done a documentary film specifically on the exile years. And Lonnie looked me straight in the eye in front of the CKX attorney and said, but it has to be done independently. I don't want my husband's legacy whitewashed. And that was so mm. meaningful to me because to me personally, she was giving wow. me the blessing, but also saying it in front of the brand managers, letting them know that's what she wanted this film to be. Wow. And also she is, I mean, and obviously Lonnie is a very, very smart person, but, saying, smart. but saying explicitly, I get who these guys are. And I get yep. what they do. So it, yep. it's a rebuke to their process. And clearly, obviously, she brought them in so she understands it was a necessary evil to make the family financially secure. But she knows what that's about. And it, it's not yep. pretty. So, you know, then I started embarking on making the film. And I wasn't done dealing with CKX. They were still really monitoring. They wanted to know what I was doing. And they said, put together a budget. And, uh, you know, we'll fund the film. And I was very suspect about that, but okay. So I figured, well, they paid you know, at least $50 million. I'm going to put together a, you know, glory of the fattest budget I can think of. And I gave them a million-dollar budget, which is huge for a documentary film, at least anything I've worked on, other than the $6 million one. I knew not to make it that big because I saw what happened when you got that much money. So a million bucks, and they didn't bat an eye. And they're like, okay. Let's do it. We were going back and forth, and I knew the elephant in the room that had not come up was Final Cut, and we were getting very close. You know, stuff was getting written up, and I finally said, so what's up with Final Cut? And they said, well, we figure if we're going to pay $6 million to make the film, that we get Final Cut. And I said, well, look, I'll give you the copyright. You can own the film, but I get Final Cut. And, and I said, look, it's not that I'm too proud to do a work for hire. If you got some kind of Elvis project you want me to do for you, I'll do it. Well, however you want me to do it. But not this. This mm. is too near and dear. And when we fell out over that, amicably, fortunately, but I was a you know, proud fool or whatever. I turned down the million dollars so that I could. And it, it, actually, we took it one step further. I was like, what are you guys worried about? And that's when it got them remembering all this stuff. That's when it got to the point where they said, well, we don't want any white devil stuff in there. I'm like, oh, man, this is not going to work. No, I just said, look. None of that white and, devil um, stuff in there. Right. <laughs> all right, come on, you guys. I'm trying to tell the story. There's no way to make this film without including that. 
You were quoted as saying on one occasion, all whites are devils. But that's not true, is it? Elijah Muhammad teaches us that God told him that all whites are devils. Well, God was wrong on that occasion, wasn't well, he? You I believe don't. every word of it. Yeah, but you don't actually believe that I all believe whites every are word. devils. Yes, sir. I believe everything he preached. I mean, I just... I, you said all, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying I to... really believe that all white people are devils. I'm not going to be no phony. I done gave up $10 million in fighting. I done, I'll go to jail for five years, and uh, you think I'm going to get on this TV show and deny what I believe? No. I believe every bit of it. My, from my point of view, what Elijah Muhammad is doing to you is diseasing your mind. You have the nerve to be on a TV show like I this think and he, look I, at me like I'm wrong for saying Elijah Muhammad is poisoning you by telling you that we're your enemies. Yeah. And I feel it and see it every day. And every black man watching this show know you are enemies. And you have the nerve to stand up here and say Elijah Muhammad is poisoning my mind. He cannot teach us that you are enemy. You taught us. I went on on my own and uh, hooked up with Cartemplin in Chicago. And we got it done. And um, yeah, so it's out in the world now. Wow. And given that the film is, an, it's my favorite of the Ali docs, and it is an explicit stance against whitewashing. It's an explicit stance against turning our heroes into something easily consumable. And given that that was your mission, I would love your thoughts about the, the funeral service that's being planned for Muhammad. You probably heard that mm-hmm. Bill Clinton is speaking at it. You probably heard that um, Orrin Hatch is one of the people leading the processional as a Mormon representative. Mm-hmm. What are the whitewashing fears of a funeral send-off like this? Well, I'm rooting for the processional. That's really why I want to go. Huh. You know, be- Me too. because um because I I believe, you know, Louisville and then some is going to just be out on the streets on mass and that's really where the send-off is happening as far as I'm concerned and as I understand it, that really was something Ali demanded that the funeral be open to the public. And I think that, you know, then in a certain way, when you're Muhammad Ali, maybe easier said than done, right? Well, we can't fit everybody who would want to come anywhere. It's a microcosm of how everybody has wanted some kind of piece of Ali in very different ways forever. And, and a piece, when I say a piece, it could be to break his jaw. It could be to lock him up. It could be to claim him as our own. Like that's, you know, and, Former President Bush says that when he gives him the Medal of Freedom, just makes my stomach turn to this day. And people's interpretation of Ali lighting the torch at the Olympics, you know, was that I've heard some of the haters say, well, okay, that's Ali's way of apologizing, or that's our way of forgiving him. I think if anything, that was his way of forgiving us, (laughs) you know for the fact that he stood for our country when our country let him down. Wow. Trials of Muhammad Ali. What scene in Trials are you most proud of? You know, I had a list, kind of magic wand list of about 10 or so people that I wanted in the film. And I got every one of them except for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So then I tried to get Bill Russell. I wanted one of the guys that was at that famous meeting where Athletes were trying to convince Ali to go to Vietnam and came out convinced he was sincere and backed him instead. So I tried to get Bill Russell, and that led me to John Carlos, man. Muhammad Ali is making statements about what was happening in his life and his world and this society in which we live, and you're going to crucify him and take his means to support his family away? Oh, and it was wrong. Simple as that. 
The United States leads the Olympics in medal awards and is just about supreme in the sprint races thanks to men like Tommy Smith and John Carlos. They came in first and third. Anytime they have an Olympic Games, anytime they do a national anthem at a football game, that's politics right there. We felt that as young individual athletes that we can make a significant difference in society. I said, look, Tommy, I want to make a statement. Let's put a black glove on and say, hey, although we're proud to be Americans, we're proud to be black Americans. I had a black shirt on to cover up my USA because I was ashamed of America, the way America has been all these years. We have a great history in this country, but at the same time, we have a history that we should be ashamed of. The number one statement in my mind was to have Muhammad Ali vindicated from all the nonsense, the negativities that they try and put around him and give him the right to be the champion that he deserved. And that happened because of your book, which I came across, that uh, I read twice in one night. And I did. I read the whole thing, and then I read it again. I love that book. Thank you. And then... I went online. This is just one of those magic serendipitous moments where I was like, well, I wonder if he's touring. I swear to God, I go online and he's coming to Wheaton College like in four days. And bam, 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 we got a hold of Wheaton and John agreed right away. And he added such a depth and soul to the film. Oh, it's great. He's electric. It might be the most proud thing is that and it's, you know, he's the one guy that represents a person that, frankly, wasn't on my initial list. But when I got to him, he was much, I think, better than Jabbar or Bill Russell would have been. I think everybody's looking for truth. Everybody's trying to find themselves. People sit back now in their old age and reflect on the crossroads of their life. Did I make the right choice? Muhammad Ali stood fast. He never denied what he stood for. Hey, Bill, I know this is a difficult time. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, I really How are you feeling, man? Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. It's It's been the sort of thing where it's been a, a non-sleeping whirlwind. And then right. every time I have a chance to just actually sit and think, I just get really sad. Yeah. That's why this kind of thing helps, actually. And I appreciate you asking me to do this because it's been, you know, um, you're an exception. But generally speaking, I don't really like to do interviews because I I don't trust them. But I feel somewhat of an obligation, but also an honor to be able to speak at this time. And it is helping me, you know. No, it's true. It's true because it's a way to not feel so isolated because we're part of Muhammad Ali's family, but we're also not. Right. So, you know, the, the only way to, I think, get through death is through collective mourning. And since we don't have access to the actual circle of the family, arms around them, crying together, sharing stories, we can only do it with each other. Man, you just convinced me I'm going to Louisville. I'll see you there. Yeah, I hope I did. I want to see you there. I'm always going to be one black one who got big on your white televisions, on your white newspapers, on your satellites, and 100% stay with and represent my people. That was my purpose, and that's why I'm happy. I'm here, and I'm showing the world that you can be here and still free and stay yourself. 
and get respect from the world. Thanks so much, Bill Siegel. The film is The Trials of Muhammad Ali. You got to see this. It's available on Hulu. Up next, author and commentator Bijan Bain. Author of Elgin Baylor, The Man Who Changed Basketball, and Martha's Vineyard Basketball, How a Resort League Defied Notions of Race and Class. His name is Bijan C. Bain. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Dave. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I really uh, anticipated this day and, it, and its eventuality for years, but um, I always wondered how I would uh, react to it and, and, and how the world would react to it. Well, before we talk Ali memories, let me just ask you that then. Like, what was your reaction when you heard the news and what has been your reaction to the reaction? For a person who... Uh, who began the way he did in, in the section of Louisville that he did with, with the parentage that he had. And then the, uh, sort of middling performance against Henry Cooper and the middling performance against Doug Jones in 1963 pre listing the arc of that to having a city that probably doesn't have a half million citizens expecting half million people to come and celebrate you is a uh, very, interesting to fathom given all the different gradations and paradoxes about Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali. Absolutely. So let's get to that because I think one of the things I wanted to talk about with you is I wanted to go back and forth and us to talk about our five most underrated or unknown Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali moments, stuff that's not making the mainstream obits little things, little stories, political actions, the things that aren't being discussed. So I'm going to throw the ball to you first. What is an Ali memory that stands out to you that is largely unknown or lesser known than the more famous stories? One of them that strikes me is that he was crowned champion the second month of 1964, and he wasn't invited to the White House until the Ford administration of the mid-1970s. Now, I know that he didn't <laughs> have the awesome. title for three and a half years in between, so that's 42 months. But to be heavyweight champion when boxing was still still occupied the public space that it did in, in the mid-60s, and to not be invited to the White House until 11 years later, gives one a sense of the political atmosphere of Muhammad Ali's time. Wow. Yeah, I'll take one too, and then I'll throw it right back. Is that there's that period between him joining the Nation of Islam and becoming Muhammad Ali, where he's hanging with Malcolm X. And he went by the name of Cassius X during this period. And talking about a slave name, you know, as Bob Lipsite said when we interviewed him 15 years before Roots, he's this, you know, big, has this huge platform talking about his slave name. And he would sign autographs, Cassius X, because he was still like the friendly guy who loved kids and loved being heavyweight champ, but he's signing everything Cassius X. And there's a part of me that wonders about like how that would affect the Ali story if he had gone through everything that he went through from the draft to Joe Frazier to the thrill in Manila to Zaire as Cassius X. 
and how we would view his history if he had carried that name with him? Well, that's one reason why I'm fortunate in, in the sense that I was obsessed with him from ages nine and read contemporary literature about him before there was a Hauser book and before there were um, other books that had the benefit of retrospective, not to knock you know, the Hausers or anybody like that, but because I was raised on Plimpton and Mailer and Bud Schulberg and Jose Torres, who were writing about him in real time when the issues were still present and the America had not largely turned in terms of its opinion on uh, military involvement in Southeast Asia. Reading those things, even when you're a little kid and, and, and just learning to absorb those issues yourself, I read a book and I've read several things that give the impression. One book was called Cassius Clay by Claude Lewis, and I bought it in a used bookstore when I was about 19. And in that book, Lewis, who's a black journalist, uh, wrote the book about the same time as Jack Olson wrote Black is Best in 1966, Jack Olson of SI. Books came out around the same time. And I can tell from having read Lewis's book that the black press knew that he had been seen in the box, not just in Harlem, but in Miami and other cities, rally in Detroit, things like that. And to the best of my knowledge, they largely sat on the information, even though there would be, you know, there would be lines about the fact that he had been seen at this rally and this bazaar that the nation held. And as early as 62 and maybe even 61-ish in the Negro media, but they sat on the information, I think, and this would be difficult for media to do today, largely to allow him to reveal that at his own uh, discretion and in his own time. You know, I think that's very interesting because a lot of folks, and I will include myself in this, um, have given uh, the black press a hard time uh, for going after him after he joined the Nation of Islam and not providing him with that kind of support. And because you go back and you read the old articles, the old editorials, there's this idea that he's a bad example. Of course, that was aided by Jackie Robinson and Joe Lewis criticizing, you know, the ultimate race men, criticizing him for not going to Vietnam. But to to hear some complexity in that relationship between the black press and Ali in the early 60s, that's really great, Bijan. I appreciate that. I think it's amazing that the day that Muhammad Ali was convicted with his five-year prison sentence, and that's something that's been left out, by the way, of a lot of these retrospectives. It's not that they use phrases like he was facing jail. It's like, no, he wasn't facing jail. An all-white jury convicted him and gave him a five-year sentence for draft evasion, which was incredibly high for those times. So federal prison, five years, that's what he was staring at. And that's been very whitewashed in all of this. And the Mm -hmm. all-white jury aspect, also very whitewashed in all of this. But the day he was convicted, the U.S. Congress voted 337 to 29 to extend the draft for four more years, and they voted 385 to 19 to make it a federal crime to desecrate the flag. To me, that just gives me an idea of, of his importance. It's like they got how dangerous he was. And they got the symbolism of coming down on him the day of his conviction. South Carolina uh, Representative Mendel Rivers was head of armed services. And he would always say when the topic of uh, Muhammad Ali's stance came up that he would get these letters from these uh, working class 
constituents of his whose sons were serving there. And there would be these angry letters about, you know, why isn't this person that's making a quarter million dollars a fight and who this country has uh, given the opportunity to have that type of largesse over there doing his part. And the time frame, and you know, everyone pretty much knows the demographic makeup of, of the troops that served in Vietnam. And they know that, you know, the high school that lost the most uh, individuals over there is Philadelphia Central High School, who lost something like 50 people or something crazy like that. You know, most of the guys who went to high school in the late 60s. And those are the people that Ali felt that he couldn't even go over there on a Joe Louis, Elvis Presley, you know, special services, entertain the troops, because it would give those type of people who were the most eligible for the draft the impression that he was giving it sanctions. So the type of things that Congress was doing and the type of things that the boxing commissions were doing, I don't think people born years after the there was no U.S. involvement there, unless they've done their homework, can really fully appreciate how important it was to take away his form and take away his profession and take away his passport so that the other people who were the best spotter to send over there to, to fight for this domino theory strategy. You know, you're, you're talking about working class white kids, but you're also talking about a lot of inner city black kids. And as the struggle got longer there and the, you know, there was less and less light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the U.S. accomplishing whatever it wanted to accomplish there, they needed kids. They needed kids that were not in college. They needed kids that could not get the firm, like Cheney and Trump, who were actually in favor of the war, but they didn't serve. And, and even the term draft dodger that some people are trolls and politicians are throwing around is a misnomer because he didn't evade. He didn't go to Canada. He didn't burn a draft card in public. He went to the Houston Induction Center and he refused to uh, be inducted. He was a conscientious objector. Yeah, and that part is, is also, I think, um, gets, gets whitewashed over. One of my intangible things is concerning the presidency. When Ali was seen frequenting these uh, mosques and temples and, and public speeches and Muslim rallies as early as 1961, and you're talking about Islam, it dawned on me that in 1961, America had just inaugurated a president whom tens of millions of people were uncomfortable with at first and were deciding whether they thought that it was appropriate for him to be president of the United States because he was a Catholic. So this person is clearly by 1962, at least known to the black community as let's say, being sympathetic to the beliefs of the nation of Islam. Only a year after Jack Kennedy was sworn in as the first Catholic president of the United States. Bijan, any last thoughts before we go? I want to give you the chance to, any last thoughts, reflections about what you think his legacy to be and what you think an athlete would have to do today, and if it's even possible for an athlete today to walk in the footsteps of Muhammad Ali. I think that a person could, if there were a large issue or issues, maybe it would take two or three issues, that they became identified with away from their sport. It's possible. 
the difference is because we self-select media, we self-select which bloggers we follow, which talk shows, which pundits we listen to, what email chains we believe or don't believe. I think it's difficult that the person will ever be as polarizing as Muhammad Ali. In 1960, ABC had 100 television affiliates around the country. By 1969, they had 1,000 television affiliates mm. around the country. And I don't want to say he saved the TV network, but the impact of them going from 100 affiliates to 1,000 affiliates because Ruin Ali decided, well, our niche is going to be sports. So we're going to start this program called Wide World of Sports. And Jim McKay is going to host it, and we're going to have thoroughbred racing, and we're going to have demolition derby, and we're going to have arm wrestling. But Ali comes along in 63 and 64, and uh, by... 1970, ABC is the home of Monday Night Football, which is, which is one of the hosts is Howard Cosell. Wow. So, you know, he really understood media. He understood camera angles. He understood a soundbite every day in the media cycle, whether it be through a poem or prediction. Uh, he understood the new slow motion technology. Slow motion debuted on ABC December 8, 1963, for the Army-Navy football game. Slow motion debuted just in time for his career, given the... Uh, the footwork and the flurries and the things of that nature that slow motion was able to capture. And he understood that because you can see him in post fights when he's breaking down the fights for the analysts, whether it be Cosell or Steve Ellis, you can see him talking about, well, I guess you can't see it. I guess you have to slow it down for people to appreciate it because it's so fast in real time. And he, wow. he understood uh, writers coming in with preconceived notions about him. He understood media having preconceived notions about his faith. He understood Dick Cavett. One of the best shows you've ever had, boy. Yes. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not just a fighter. See, most boxers can't talk like this. They're That's not right. intelligent. I mean, you're a witty man. They pay you to set up here to think. You're a brain. I'm handling you. I know. You, you know. <laughs> Look how I'm handling you. You're, you're an interviewer. You don't get hit on the head. You, you're supposed to be smart. And I'm a boxer, and you talking about queer street and punch drunk, and I'm making you, what are you then if I can outdo you? Look, I, I'm making you lose. You baffled. You don't know what to say. Look at you. Can't even talk. I'm just tiring you. My stress is rope a dope. He'll collapse in a minute, and I'll put you away. No, you are. You could exchange. He was never knocked off his feet in terms of uh, verbal sparring by William F. Buckley or David Frost. He was a very sophisticated, critical thinker on his feet. Yeah. In a genuine way that made people, even though they didn't come around until years later, on the issues about which he was expressing his opinion when he was doing all this critical thinking, but the, the genuineness of, of it, and I would advise people running for president to take a page from his book. If you're genuine, even if there's an issue about which people disagree with you or think that you've handled it wrong or think that you haven't been forthcoming about it, you can't sway the person to agree with you right then and there because they've already formed their opinion. But the way that you'll be seen in history in the long term, and Ali understood big picture very, very well, even while these things were happening, people will appreciate you if you stated your case clearly and rationally, even if they didn't believe it at the time, they'll appreciate you someday. Bijan, that's the best possible note to end on. Thank you so much, my man. Well, thank you for having me, Dave.
And now the last word on the Muhammad Ali series. When we were talking about who we wanted to have that last word, it really wasn't much of a discussion at all. Please listen to my friend, icon, legend, 1968 Olympian, Dr. John Carlos. The question's very simple. I mean, Muhammad Ali passed away. Uh, how, how are you feeling and what thoughts are going through your head? Well, in a sense, I'm saddened that I wouldn't be able to see his face in the flesh and blood. But I'm happy that he doesn't have to suffer anymore because he was trapped in, in, in the agony in the, in the body. But relative to him leaving this earth, he'll never leave the earth because Muhammad Ali is greater than any icon. All icons we had in history, they all have to take a step backwards because Muhammad Ali will be in the time, the spaces and time, he will be the number one icon in his life that we live. Mm. My estimation, Muhammad Ali is like a star that's everlasting in the sky. He will shine eternally, forever, in terms of what he saw as a visionary, what he spoke to truth as a man, and realizing that his athleticism was just merely that, a stepping stone or a springboard to be able to speak for those that didn't have the power to speak for themselves. Wow. His ideals, his ideals was not to be hidden behind closed doors and say, I want to help this organization or help that organization or send money here, send money here. He did everything out front in the open. That should be a testimony for any athlete to realize that I don't have to be hiding to go and serve the people. I should be proud to serve the people and set an example. And that's what he did throughout his whole entire life mm. as a young individual as well as an adult. Mm. He's an everlasting shining star. You know, they say John F. Kennedy had the eternal light. Well, that was the eternal light from man. He's an eternal light to a shining star by the grace of God. As I always stated before, there's a man-made icon and there's a God-given icon. And that's what Muhammad Ali was to this world, a God-given icon to this society in which we live. Wow. It's amazing to hear one icon give so much respect to another. Thank you. Oh, well, he's, he's the ultimate. No, no doubt about it. And his life is institution of education. Everyone should better look at his life and grow from him if you're paying attention. There's no more quiz time. Now is the time for tests because he's gone now. So you have to test your fortitude and see where you stand in society as a human, humanistic person. Wow. People go eat, sleep, and breathe, Muhammad Ali, because they're going to always have to question themselves. You know, like the old saying goes, say, what would Jesus do? Yeah. Well, the, the, the new phrase is, what would Ali do? Dr. John, man, th thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. Man, I ain't got nothing but love for you, man. You know that. Anytime, yeah. David. Thank you, Bill Siegel. Thank you, Bijan Bain. Thank you, Dr. John Carlos. Anybody who wants any kind of information about these three terrific people, look at the bottom of the description of this podcast at edgeofsportspodcast.com. Thank you to everybody for listening on this 
emotionally demanding, but frankly, altogether inspiring week as we remember the unvarnished history of Muhammad Ali. Thank you so much to my producer, Dan Bloom, who's worked tirelessly to put this together. Uh, you can subscribe to the Edge of Sports podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and you can hear all the episodes, everyone we've done, at edgeofsportspodcast.com. And you can follow me on social media at Edge of Sports. You can always email the show at edgeofsports at slate.com. Thank you so much for listening. We are out of here. Love to the champ. Peace. To those of the people who think that I lost so much by not taking the step, I haven't lost one thing. I have gained a lot. Number one, number one, I have gained a peace of mind. I have gained a peace of heart. I now know that I'm in content with Almighty God Himself. <laughs>